At the Foot of the Cross, a monthly podcast from the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to At the Foot of the Cross, our monthly podcast from the Secretariat of the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Now, I have to say, it's been a bit of a scorcher, the hottest day on record we've had in recent times. So to cool us down and bring us back to reality, I have Canon Christopher Thomas, the General Secretary of the Bishops' Conference. Canon Chris, how are you? Very well, thank you, James. Good to see you. You too. Did you survive the heat? I did, yes. I was, I was, I was fine with it. It was a bit warm, but, uh, but it was OK. And even had a press conference on the national synthesis for the Synod that we yes. shall talk about on that very, very hot day. Yes, fortunately, the, our, our new conference rooms here at the uh, Secretariat are air-conditioned, so it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't too bad, thank God. Yes, in the old days, that would have been uh, quite, quite an ordeal, I think. But yes, mm. that's lovely now. Uh, so yes, we will talk about that in this podcast, which I'm billing, Father Chris, as July and August... Because in August, obviously, our bishops are either away on retreat or pilgrimage or having a break. So it is that sort of traditional recharging batteries month, isn't it? It is, yes. So and, uh, things do slow down here uh, somewhat in, in, in the August month, yeah. But we pick up again very quickly when we get back to September. I know. You know, I've looked at my horrible backlog. I have lots of videos and lots of pieces of audio I've promised to edit in recent months. So that will be my August, I think. So what we are talking about on this particular podcast is... That national synthesis we've just alluded to, and on top of that, the bishops gave their initial reflections. Yes. Yes. Uh, Seeking our heart's desire is the That's document, the, yeah. the, the reflection document on that. Now, that and the national synthesis have gone to Rome, but we will talk about that. We also want to cover what I think is quite exciting for, for Catholics in England and Wales. I, I'm looking forward to it. The St. Bernadette Relics Tour. That's right, yeah, from uh, September, October. Yeah. yeah, two full months. We all hold Lord deep in our hearts Indeed. and this is a nice opportunity to have Lord come to us yes yeah so we'll definitely talk about that now I'm not talking to you about this but I will be talking to Bishop David Oakley our lead on marriage and family life about a new document which is technically actually a, a document offering reflections on the 2016 Vatican document Amoris Laetitia that's called the joy of love and we'll cover those main four or five themes in that post-synodal apostolic exhortation. I always find that a mouthful. Mm. There we go. And then just to finish, before you will give us your usual lovely Bible reflection, scripture reflection, which I'm looking forward to, a word or two, if you would, on Evangelii Gaudium Sunday, which is something most people probably won't have heard of because in its former guise it was called Home Mission Sunday, something celebrated in September, this time the 18th of September. So rather than do that now, we'll, we'll do that in a second. Okay. But can we start with the Synod and in this sense, the national synthesis and seeking our heart's desire, the bishop's initial reflections? Tell us about those. Well, these two documents, which have gone now gone off to Rome, uh, they've been received at the Synod office. I've had confirmation emails from both Cardinal Grech and Sister Natalie Beckhart to say that uh, uh, they, uh, they've received them safely. Um, and, in, and certainly Sister Natalie said that she would be looking at the submission from England and Wales with great interest. Now, whether she says that to everybody, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but she did say that, that we had uh, followed uh, the, the process uh, you know, very faithfully. What we've got, I think, is is a wonderful snapshot of where the church is at the moment in England and Wales. It's important to say also that the sending of these documents to Rome is not the end. 
these documents will be sent have, have been sent to the synod office in Rome, and they will be joined by the submissions from all the other bishops' conferences around the world. And the distillation of the thoughts, the themes, the images, the uh, the issues that have emerged from every bishops' conference will then be sort of honed in, as it were, polished. And in October, we are looking for the publication of what's called the working document on the continental phase. The Vatican speak for this is the first lineamenta. A lineamenta is, is basically uh, giving the lines of where the discussion is going to move. So that'll be very interesting. And that'll come back to the continental phase, which for us is the European continental phase. And that particular uh, phase is going to be steered by CCEE, which is the, the conference of European bishops' conferences. So we'll participate in that. And that will culminate in a plenary meeting in Prague from the 5th to the 12th of February next year. We still don't know much about that um, because I think this is still a, a process of discernment. Now discernment of those who work in Rome, looking yeah. at the whole issue of the synodal way. But what have we done in England and Wales? Well, we have the National Synthesis, which we published uh, back in June. And that's been on our website and it's been joined now with the Bishop's Discernment document, the Bishop's Reflection document, Seeking Our Heart's Desire. And what we've got there is the synthesis of what over 800, 700, 800 pages of reflections coming in from dioceses and national organisations, the refinements that came through the National Synod Day that we held on the 1st of June in Southwark Cathedral and people participated in that, over 100 people participated in that. And then the bishops themselves sat down on the 28th of June and looked at those themes that had emerged from the National Synthesis and, and they, they discerned, you know, what, what strikes them about what they have received. Because one of the processes that was important in creating the National Synthesis is that it wasn't written in a judgmental way. It was, what have we received and what do we transmit on? To quote, I'm afraid, St. Paul, uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 15, he says, that which I receive myself, I faithfully hand on to you. And we tried to be faithful in the handing on and the distilling of those major themes that came from all of the reports that came in. And it was the bishops then that took those and thought about, well, what is this saying to us as bishops? Because as bishops, they are with us as Christians. They are part of the people of God, but they are our leaders as well. And they mm. have a particular charism of discernment by virtue of their Episcopal ordination. And so they have to discern how to lead the church in the way forward. And that's what this process has been about. So what we have now is is that which we have received from the people in the diocese and in the national organisations and that what the bishops have reflected on, which, is, to be honest, is a document of great richness. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's gone to Rome. I didn't know it had actually officially not only gone, but been acknowledged. That's right, yes, yeah. And uh, Cardinal Grech and Sister Natalie Beckhart, who I've met both of them on several occasions. The last time I met them was with Archbishop McMahon and Cardinal Nichols when we were in Rome in March. Uh, and we went to the Synod office to talk about what we were doing in England and Wales. And uh, Archbishop McMahon, who has been leading the Liverpool Synod, the, the Diocesan Synod there, uh, handed over the plan of action for Liverpool along with another document which he called issues which are outside the remit of a, of, of a diocesan synod. Those things that you can't do anything about but Rome needs to know that they are important in the mind of the people and that's something that is also in, in essence you know what, what, what we've got in our national synthesis. There are certain things that we can do and must do in this country. There are certain things that we have to wait for Rome to think about and to discern themselves in the Synod of Bishops. What the bishops have written is a very beautiful document. It, it's been sensitive to the reality of the time and the place. So the context of England and Wales, where we are at the moment, emerging from the pandemic and discerning through 
what has been received the way forward for the Church in England and Wales because even though these documents have gone there's still work to do here because the Holy Father wants us to embed this process of spiritual conversations and listening into the heart of the life of the Church and the key thing as Cardinal Nichols said last week when we when we published this you know, it, the key thing is about is about how do we form people so that they are confident in speaking about their faith and how do we accompany them on the road of journey of faith. And do you think we've learnt a lot about the Catholics of England and Wales in this process? I feel that, well, I certainly have. I mean, I've read all the submissions and, and they're <laughs> You've beautiful. You've read every page. That's right. But they, they are beautiful. They're challenging. I'm not going to be saccharine about this. Mm. You know, they're really challenging. There is a lot of hurt in those pages. And we have to acknowledge that and work to alleviate it. And there are things that that we can do about being more open and welcoming as communities, of of looking at inclusivity, of making sure that people are being fed spiritually and in the formation in faith. You know, there's a lot that can be done, but it does need us all as the people of God, bishops, priests, deacons, religious, lay people. We are all, by virtue of the baptised, we all have a place in the church. We all have the Holy Spirit within us. And we have to, using the three words of the Synod, we all have to enter into communion so that we can participate better in the mission of the church in England and Wales today. And like you say, it's not a fait accompli. It's not done and dusted. We we don't sort of say, well, that was a process that we had to do and then we move on. And at the press conference, you were asked particularly you know, challenging questions, be it about abuse, be it about the place of women, be it about racism, whether that's a major factor in our parishes. And I thought you answered them very well. But as you say, it's about acknowledging these things, isn't it? We can't, it's part of the life of the church, the good and the bad. Yes. Yeah. You know, one of the things that the the bishops talked about in their reflection document was the signs of the times. If you go back, that phrase comes from Gaudium et Spes, the pastoral constitution on the church in the modern world, written Mm. in 1965. And that's a, a very rich document. We've moved on from a lot of the things in that document, but it still provides us with a really interesting reflection. And, you know, Gaudium Espes, paragraph 22 for me, about the about the incarnation and the paschal mystery and how Christ gives us the direction for the world. You know, we, we need to, to look at how do we read the signs of today's church, today's world, and how can the church be an entity of love in the world? Because Christ is is the entity of love in our hearts, so we have to be the entity of love in the world. And how do we do that? How do we become missionary in proclaiming the gospel that brings life? How do we proclaim the gospel that includes the dignity of everyone? And there are lots of challenges. Those things that you talked about, the challenging questions, they're all part and parcel of the mix. And we've got to address them. And we can't just say, well, we've heard, but we're doing nothing. We have to have eyes and see. We have ears to listen and perceive. And I think that that, that really is, is what we have to do now is, is yes, the, the documents have gone to Rome, but there's work to do here in England and Wales. Very well said. We'll leave it there. It's, it's such a good ending. On to St Bernadette mm. and the relics tour that we're having from the 3rd of September and lasting a good couple of months touring the whole country. And, and Lords is such an important place to us. In fact, as we speak, Lords is a very, very special place. I was ordained in 2001. We'll come on to that a little bit later. Mm. And I'd never been to Lourdes before I was ordained. And there's a tradition in the Nottingham Diocese that the newly ordained priests are invited to go on the Dossism pilgrimage. And I went. And I went as a sceptic, I hasten to add. Right. Uh, And I came away absolutely in love with the place. It is a remarkably spiritual place. And I'll tell you, there are two things for me 
that make Lourdes special. The first is the way in which the sick and those who are infirm are the true VIPs. They are the very important people in Lourdes. And the care that is shown, especially by our young people, Certainly in the Diocese of Nottingham Pilgrimage, you know, we, we take a lot of young people with us from our secondary schools to assist with caring for the sick and the infirm. And they do proper training. It's all done really, really well by the Lord's team. And when you see the care that these young people have for the elders, you know, I, I just think it's lovely. And I can think of many occasions where the love of God has shone in Lourdes because of that. And for me, the other thing that is really important is is the spirituality of Lourdes. I have a particular thing that I do in Lourdes. I I always go to uh, the Mass late in the evening. There's a Mass at 11 o'clock in the grotto. There used to be. I haven't been this year, I hasten to add. (laughs) But there used to be a Mass at 11 o'clock in the grotto, sometimes celebrated in Italian, sometimes in French. And I always used to go to it because at the end of the Mass, there is a period of quiet adoration of the Blessed Sacrament in the grotto from whenever the Mass ends, so if it ends at 11.30 until midnight. And it's the most special time. And when you've had a busy day, it's a lovely time to sit with the Lord, to see the statue of Our Lady, who appeared to Bernadette, and to sit there and to give thanks to God for all of the blessings of the day, to bring to mind all those you'd engaged with, all the people who you've laughed with, all the people you've cried with, all the people you've had a lovely conversation with. And it can be, you know, in all different ways. I love that moment because it's a real completion of each day. And that's something I tend to do when I go to Lourdes as well. Well, the exciting news for us is that we have St Bernadette coming to England and Wales. We're receiving the the relics, which are a gift to England and Wales. And Scotland is making... St Bernadette is going to Scotland for one visit, for a week, I hasten to add. Hmm. Uh, But she's going to the the shrine at Carfin in Scotland. But the rest of the time, the relics will be travelling around England and Wales. And when you think about relics, I mean, I'm sure that many of people who are listening will remember the tour of the relics of St. Therese. Yes. And how remarkable that tour was, how people engaged in the tour in such a beautiful way. And I'm hoping that this will be exactly the same for when St. Bernadette comes, because the link of Bernadette and, and Lourdes is deep in the spirituality of the people of England and Wales. The way in which every diocese in the country goes to Lourdes each year for a pilgrimage to do those things that Our Lady told Bernadette to do. And, you know, the theme for this year is go and tell the priests. It's one of three phrases that Our Lady spoke to Bernadette. And, you know, when you go to Lourdes, you enter into that deep spirituality of a girl who was poorly educated, poor, almost destitute, and yet had that openness of heart. She saw the beautiful lady. She responded to what the beautiful lady said. Now, for me, that's a paradigm of our own lives. I mean, you know, we must always open ourselves to our Lord Jesus Christ, to to the work of the Holy Spirit within us, that it ultimately through our cooperation with God's will will lead us into a deeper relationship with him. But Our Lady always points towards our Lord. You know, she, she never does anything for herself. And so in appearing to Bernadette, she wanted people to come to do penance, to wash, and to celebrate and praise God in that place. And so when the relics are coming to us on pilgrimage, rather than us going on pilgrimage to Lourdes, St Bernadette's message becomes very real for us, and the message of Our Lady of Lourdes becomes real to us. And that's always to point us to our Lord Jesus Christ. And relics, some people like them, some people don't. I mean, what relics do is a tangible thing of putting us in touch with those who have led lives of virtue. 
the reliquary contains part of her body, just as the reliquary of St. Therese contained part of her body. And when we venerate relics, it's about literally touching our past but touching our present as well. Because as I always said to people in the parish when I, was, when I would do baptisms, you know, why do we have statues? Statues like photographs. When you look at a photograph, I think of a photograph I've got on my mantelpiece, I see my parents and myself. When I look at that photograph, I know that that was taken on Caswell Beach in the Mumbles in Swansea when I was about six years old. And when I look at it, I remember that I got sand in my ice cream and we ate cheese and tomato sandwiches. And the thing is... is that That's very vivid. Well, yeah, and that's what statues should do for us. Photographs lead us into a deeper story. Mm. And when we look at a statue, it leads us into the deeper story of the life. I mean, you know, we, we, we don't know what some saints look like. We do know what Bernadette looked like because there are pictures. But the statues or the photographs lead us into a deeper reality. And in the same way, relics lead us into the deeper reality. They should always lead us through the life of the saint to our Lord because of their virtue, their devotion to him. Some people do, though, as you say, you know, we had this some 15 years ago with the visit of the relics of St. Therese. Some people do find it odd. So now, on the one hand, to the wider world, it's actually quite a good opportunity to explain why these ordinary people that ended up doing extraordinary things are so connected with us and important to us. But then you say things like veneration and they say, well, what is that? And why are you touching old bones and all that sort of thing? Now, you've already explained that, but is this an opportunity for us to reach out and show some of our devotion and Catholic faith to the wider world? It is. And I think that all of these are opportunities for evangelization. One of the reasons that the bishops were very keen to respond positively to the invitation of the shrine to receive the relics in these countries is because we want people to come back to the practice of their faith. We know that we've had all the issues of COVID. We've talked about that before on our, on our podcasts. Mm-hmm. This is a real opportunity to do something beautiful, to do something together, and to do something that actually touches the hearts of, of lots of people. Everybody knows about Lourdes in the Catholic Church, but we're also going to be opening that up to other people. So to give you an example, on the relic tour, the relics will be at both the Metropolitan Cathedral in Liverpool, but also at the Anglican Cathedral in Liverpool. So there's an ecumenical dimension there. The relics will go to Wormwood Scrubs. Yes, indeed. So that uh, the prisoners there can pray with the saint. The relics will also go to Birkenhead Carmel, Now, that's an enclosed Carmelite convent, and the sisters there have a deep devotion to our Lord, and for them to receive the relics there for a day is for it to become an even greater powerhouse of prayer, as it were, inspired by the presence of the relics of the saint in the Carmel itself. So, yes, it's an opportunity for catechesis to explain why we do things. We only ever worship God. That's the most important thing. We must never forget that God is the only one who deserves our worship. What the saints do is to point us in the direction of living lives of virtue, of living out his will so that we grow in holiness. And if we grow in holiness, then the world grows in holiness. And again, to come back to the teaching of the Second Vatican Council that we talked about a little bit earlier on, you know, uh, the universal call to holiness is for all the baptised. And so this is part of a pilgrimage that will help us to rekindle a real fire for our faith in the presence of somebody who we know because of our relationship with the shrine of Our Lady of Lord. Wow, you've got me excited already. Now, 
for people that want to find out more, there is a dedicated website for this, St. Bernadette, as in ST, stbernadette.org.uk. We'll also be carrying all the core information on the Bishops' Conference website, cbcew.org.uk. And you can make a donation, of course, to support that visit because these things do have overheads. We, we do need to find a way of making it as, as safe, special and accessible as possible to everybody. So do please, if you feel you can support it in that way, do please do so. 3rd of September, isn't it? Through to pretty much the 30th of October, 1st of November. That's right, yes. So yes. there's plenty so of time for anyone time. who wants to, to go. That's to right. And there are plenty of stations, places where where the relics will, will be uh, will be stopping so that people can go and make their prayer uh, and uh, all of the tour dates and, and, and locations are on the website. And do you know what, actually, talking and, and in fact looking back to the visit of the relics of St. Therese, such an important time. I didn't understand, I was a recent convert, so I didn't know too much about veneration of relics. And I remember taking my children, and I've got still got those pictures, talking about pictures and memories. And I, my 20-year-old now, I think, had like a comfort blanket at the time. I'm seeing them putting their hands on, on you know, the reliquary yeah. and stuff. Yeah. Memories that I'll never forget. And I think that's the good thing. Fif- nearly 15 years have passed since then, mm. would you believe it? But those memories, especially when you look back, are, are very vivid and keep us very connected yeah and it's about nurturing the life of faith you know when you look at someone like Bernadette and the wonderful story of her encounter with the with the beautiful lady I just think that that it can touch the hardest of hearts as it were it can melt the hardest of hearts because she was persistent because she knew what she was doing was true and when you look at what happens in Lourdes every year with the pilgrims with the love that is shown there with the care that is shown by especially young people to the VIPs, to to the the sick and the infirm. It's a marvellous picture of love in action, and, and that really is fantastic. Well, definitely something to look forward to. And I'll tell you what will happen. I'm sure we'll see a, a few hairy teenagers that don't normally find their way into churches going and, and paying their respects yeah, as well. Yeah, it'll be lovely. Look forward Everybody to is welcome. Everybody is welcome. Now... I guess everybody is welcome to Evangelii Gaudium Sunday as well. Yes. Talking about outreach and talking about evangelization mm. and maybe broadening the lens a bit there. Mm. Formerly Home Mission Sunday. Yeah. Now it's Evangelii Gaudium Sunday, celebrated on the 18th of September. Tell us a little bit about the sort of distinction between what Home Mission Sunday was and what Evangelii Gaudium Sunday is. Well, Home Mission Sunday was specifically linked to the work of the Home Mission Office, which was situated here in the Bishop's Conference Secretariat. Mm. We went through a revisioning and a restructuring of our work here, and that office closed. So we couldn't have a Home Mission Appeal, which pays for the work of the uh, Home Mission Office when the Home Mission Office doesn't exist anymore. But the work that that Home Mission Office um, embraced has now been expanded. And the reason it's been expanded is because of this rather awkward name, Evangelii Gaudium, of the apostolic exhortation of Pope Francis in 2013. He wrote, this was his first apostolic exhortation, and it was the first document that he wrote on his own. If you remember, he published Lumen Fide beforehand. But as he said at the time, there were were a few more hands involved in that because (laughs) our Holy Father Emeritus, Pope Benedict, had begun the work on that. Mm -hmm. So... What is the core of Evangelii Gaudium Sunday? It's about the proclamation of the gospel. And it's about the proclamation of the gospel in three distinct ways. So the first is the work of evangelization and catechesis. That's about the the formation of people in a way that they're confident about their faith, that they can speak and enunciate the truths of what we believe into the space in which they live. The second thing is about dialogue. These are are all in Evangelii Gaudium. How do we dialogue with 
for instance, other Christians? How do we dialogue with people of other religions? Because that's an important part of the proclamation of the gospel. We have to proclaim what we believe from a position of confidence, but we also have to listen to where other people are so that in some respects there is that sense of mutual enrichment. And the third thing, which I think is very novel, it's something new, is a thing called the via pulchritudinis. You'll have to explain that to us. I will. The via pulchritudinis is the way of beauty and how beauty leads us to God. St. Augustine said that the three attributes of anything that comes from God is truth, beauty and goodness. And beauty is something that leads us to God. So we have a, a particular care for beautiful churches. Mm. We have a, a patrimony committee as part of our work here in the Bishops' Conference, which cares for churches of particular note. They don't have to be historic. I mean, I can think of one particular church in the Diocese of Nottingham that was built in the 60s that is Grey Two Star listed uh, because of its architect, because of the novelty of the design. So the Via Procritudinis is how do we use beauty as an evangelization tool to bring people into a relationship with the Lord. And that's a slightly more novel way of looking at mission. But it's an important way because if I think of people who I've taken into churches and they just go, wow, this is really, really beautiful. What my job then is, is to say, yes, the beauty leads you to God. The beauty leads you through everything in this church when it is explained. It leads you into that encounter with Christ because it's from our encounter with Christ that we begin the journey of faith. But also it's about liturgy, it's about the way that we celebrate things beautifully in the liturgy of the church, that they become not just something that is done here on earth, but it's leading us into that heavenly Jerusalem, into the heavenly liturgy as well. And the work of dialogue is very important because, you know, we have a gospel to proclaim and that good news needs to be shared with others. Those others of faith, other denominations of Christianity, of the Judaism, of relationships with our, our brothers and sisters of the, of, the, of the Islamic faith, you know, we need to talk to each other to find those touch points. Because if you go back to again to the Second Vatican Council and talk and see the document Nostra Aetate, which was on the dialogue with the Abrahamic faiths particularly, we have a common ancestry. So how can we learn from each other? Yeah. And then, of course, uh, there is the, the, the explicit formation in faith of our Catholic people so that they are confident to be able to proclaim their faith wherever they are. So this is what Evangelii Gaudium Sunday is about. I know it's a little bit of a, of a tongue twister in terms of a title, but it's basically it's about the whole gamut of how do we proclaim the gospel in today's world so that it is touching the hearts of others that will lead them to Christ. So those that give £5, £10, whatever they might give, they can be assured that that money is actually going to the work of evangelisation, yes. but yes. also the work of dialogue and the work of upholding the beauty of our churches and the, the important role of the liturgy in that as well. That's right. So that it'll, it will go towards the, the, the work that we do here on behalf of the bishops, always steered by them and guided by them to this proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. I tell you what, you always leave me with a way of segueing in. Proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, I think you know where I'm going here. Scripture time. Yes. I think you've got a nice scripture reflection for us. Well, last Sunday was the 21st anniversary of my ordination to the priesthood. And I was very blessed to be supplying in a parish in my own diocese. I was in the parish of Skegness and Spilsby. And it was the gospel of Jesus going to be with uh, Martha and Mary, a gospel we all know. And there were a couple of things that struck me when I was preaching about this gospel. 
The first was about my, my time as, as a priest. If you had said to me 21 years ago, as I lay on the floor in Nottingham Cathedral and Bishop Malcolm, who was our bishop then, prayed the prayer of consecration over me, if you'd said, oh, you'll be the general secretary of the bishop's conference, I would have laughed at you. But the one thing that I always know is that our God is always going to be a God who constantly surprises us. And if we live with him, he will always give us the grace to be able to embrace whatever is asked of us. And that word grace is really important. It's the love of God that we can never earn or desire. It's already there in our creation because God doesn't create anything that he doesn't love. It's there most beautifully in our forgiveness and redemption. And therefore, it's the most precious of gifts. In our human relationships, we have to remember that, that when we encounter other people, um, we can become a gift to them just as they become a gift to us. And it's the recognition of that. So when we look at the story of Martha and Mary, we've all known the scene of somebody beavering away in the kitchen, of a guest who's arrived in the house and somebody is looking after them. And then uh, somebody appears in the doorway full of flour and with, a, with an apron on saying, come on, give me a hand over here. Both are doing the right thing. They're both living out their vocation. At that time, Martha was being someone who lived out the, the vocation of hospitality. Mary was being a listener. She was listening to the Lord. Both are worthy vocations. And we all need both vocations in our lives, doing and being with the Lord. But what we have to do is think about what was behind that. They had invited Jesus to, into their house. And it was a time of a pause for him. It was a time of, of grace in many respects because at this point in his ministry, tension is building. And so he comes into their house and they think that they're going to give him a meal. But actually, it's Jesus who actually is giving of himself because nourishment is really important. If you feed somebody, what you're doing is giving them life. You are saying to them, you will not be hungry today, therefore you can live till tomorrow. I don't know where your food is going to come tomorrow, but today I will make sure that you are going to live. And that's a really beautiful thing. But it's also spiritual, because when you are giving a meal, you are also engaging in a personal relationship with the other. And so you are enriching each other by the very presence of each other, by your dialogue, by your laughter, by your sharing at table. What Mary recognises is that Jesus is also a giver. He is giving her the wisdom. We don't know what the words that he was speaking are, but all we know is that it enthralled her so much that she sat at his feet while there could have been things that she could have helped out with. And when Jesus gives that little rebuke, it's actually very beautiful because he uses Martha's name twice. You know, it's Martha, Martha. <laughs> you know, it's, come on, my love, sit down, come and join us. As I said on Sunday, and they laughed in the church, have a gin and tonic. You know, it's come and see what I am offering you. Because the spirit of generosity that Jesus is giving, just as Martha and Mary are giving, is sacrificial. And whenever we welcome somebody into our lives or to our homes, we make a sacrifice because we give of our time, of our space and of ourselves to enrich and to be enriched by them. And that means recognising grace. It means recognising the gifts that have been given. Coming back to my 21 years of ministry, there have been so many occasions where I have been graced by being in the presence of another if you think of, of just the seven sacraments of the church, you know, the joy of baptising a little one, preparing children for their first Holy Communion and seeing the joy of receiving the Lord for the first time, of healing in the sacrament of confession. And as I always say to people, I want people crying when they go out of my confessional, but not of tears of sadness, but with tears of joy. Because as the Holy Father tells us, the confession is not a place that's a torture chamber, it's a place of grace and mercy.
and they need to experience that in every word that the priest says. Then you look at accompanying people on their last days, the anointing of the sick and holding people's hands when they die, the joy of ordination, the joy of marriage, the joy of confirmation. These are all graced moments that I, as a priest, am deeply grateful for because it allows me to be part of the privileged times of other people's lives. But, above all, I have to recognise that people enrich me just as much as I hope I enrich them through those encounters. And that becomes a graced moment. And so when we look at that gospel, we must never forget that it's all reciprocal. We think about the Martha and Mary giving a meal to Jesus, but Jesus is enriching them. And because they are there and they are giving of of themselves to each other, it's sacrificial, therefore it makes them holy. And so remember that we have the opportunity and it ties in with Evangelii Gaudium Sunday, it ties in with the Synod of Bishops, it ties in with the gifts and charisms of Lourdes and the relics of St. Bernadette. What we're talking about is encounter one to another is a time of grace, and we have the opportunity to share the message of Jesus Christ. Wonderful, as always. And do you know what? I was married possibly a month or two before you were ordained then, so it's 21 years for me as well, in that lovely exchange under God. Absolutely. (laughs) Ken and Chris, thanks very much. Bless you. Thanks, James. And have a good summer. You too. Thank you. Canon Christopher Thomas there, our General Secretary here at the Catholic Bishops' Conference of England and Wales. Now, before we leave you to enjoy the delights of summer, here, as promised, is an interview we recorded with the Bishop of Northampton, the Right Reverend David Oakley, who is also our lead bishop on marriage and family life. It's all about a new document from the Bishops' Conference Committee for Marriage and Family Life called The Joy of Love, and it looks at the main themes of the post-synodal apostolic exhortation, Amoris Laetitia, that you might remember came out back in 2016. Let's have Bishop David Oakley tell us some more about this. So, I'm joined by Bishop David Oakley, Bishop of Northampton, and our lead for marriage and family life here at the Catholic Bishops' Conference in England and Wales. Bishop David, how are you? I'm fine, James, thank you. So look, we've had the the World Meeting of Families, which was very much a, a local affair this time, even though it took place in Rome, I guess because of the pandemic and other things, and possibly even the Holy See looking at a different model of, of more local engagement. Now, this also concluded the Year of the Family, which marked the fifth anniversary of Amoris Laetitia, which seems like rather a long time. I can't believe it's been five years since that document was, was released. And it, it obviously follows a synod, doesn't it? Or in this case, two synods where we focused on family life. And this is the sort of condensed summary of all those discussions that took place over a few years, isn't it? I think the most important aspect of this particular one, Amoris Laetitia, is that it came out during the year of mercy. And that's not just an accidental. I'm sure that Pope Francis deliberately produced this particular text for us to consider during the year of mercy. In fact, he says as much at the beginning of the text. So this is his reflection on the final document released by the bishops after these two synods. And it is a very important text for us to consider. 
Now, we've taken it on from there in a sense now in 2022, some five years later, and the Bishops' Conference is releasing a document called The Joy of Love, Amoris Laetitia. But this is more a series of reflections, isn't it, on those key themes, joy, love, realities and discernment and mission. So it's not an exhaustive commentary as such on Amoris Laetitia. These are, I guess, experience-led reflections, aren't they? But the question I have first of all is, why are we looking at this now? five years on? Well, James, you mentioned earlier that uh, we've just recently experienced one of the regular world meetings of families. Of course, the pandemic messed up everything, really, including this particular experience. Uh, it, It came later than it was expected to. And I think it's very important to look at it within a, a broader dynamic, because quite often we uh, think that these things are happening in in the local diocese rather than in Rome because of the pandemic, because of the difficulties in travel. That's definitely a little part of it. But more importantly, the dicastery responsible for marriage and family life wanted it to be a kind of Rome at home experience, really. They wanted the experience to be embedded in the local churches, the diocese, because they really did want us to take this seriously. It's not just a a jamboree in Rome for a few days and then everybody goes back to normal life. They want us to try and incarnate the teaching of Amoris Laetitia in the life of diocesan marriage and family life commissions and those Catholic organisations which have a charism for marriage and family life. So... The reason why we're looking at Amoris Laetitia now is because it itself was the preparatory document in so many ways for the world meeting of families. And the Holy Father asked us to take a year just to reflect on the teaching of this important document. And it has to be said that it received initially a very mixed reception. Not everybody was happy with the content of it. But we need to see the whole document as a whole. And having a year to revisit the text and to study it again gave us the opportunity to discover the riches within it. Now, here in England and Wales, our Committee for Marriage and Family Life has three work streams. And the work stream that's responsible for theological reflection decided, really discerned, I think would be a more appropriate word, that we shouldn't produce a commentary that would be divisive. So we decided just to take some major themes in the text and put those forward, drawing very much upon the theology that underpins the text. And what would you say, I mean, in an ideal world, which this isn't, um, what would you want those reflections to, to achieve? How would you want people to receive them? A lot of people may not have the time or the wherewithal to read the whole text of Amoris Laetitia. We would be hoping that couples and families might come across this text and feel encouraged to to really reflect upon it. So I I would say these thoughts, as indeed the the post-nodal apostolic exhortation itself, Amoris Laetitia, should be read in a contemplative way. It's not a piece of text that you read in your head, as it were, and then allow questions of an academic nature to rise up in one's mind. I think it's a text that one receives in one's heart. And I think for 
our brothers and sisters who have the vocation for marriage and family life, that this is a very important moment, an opportunity to contemplate the mystery of love within marriage and family life and to grow, therefore, in their sense of discipleship, because that's the core of it. That's the, that's the centre of this document, that this is a vocation. Marriage and family life is a very important vocation in the church. Of course, family life is experienced in many different ways today, and uh, not everybody who's married is able to experience uh, their, their own family life. But for those who are married and for those who have families, there is much in the, the text itself and in our reflections upon it as a committee that would help us to encounter the reality of God in the midst of marriage and family life. Now, I've, I've been looking through it, actually, because I have um, rather a large family myself and families are full of joy on the whole, but can experience pain and messiness. And I guess these reflections, I did notice there are a few sort of questions afterwards for reflection and it's sort of it's not a flow chart is it family life if this then that or if if this then yes if that then no it's not quite as simple as that so I found that quite useful so it's, it's not really ducking the tough issues either it's acknowledging they are there isn't it well my own experience of of a family growing up it's more a gush chart than a flow chart I'd say <laughs> you know it was <laughs> but I think look James it begins the, doc the document begins as one might expect, the title is In the Light of the Word. Everything that we do, every experience of discipleship, we have to reflect upon in the uh, light of God's word, what God has revealed to us. But very quickly then, in chapter two, which is entitled The Experiences and Challenges of Families, there's a real engagement here of what you might call theological reflection and experience. There's an attempt in the synodal process to understand the reality of marriage and family life, recognising, of course, that within a universal church, there's a huge divergent panoply of experiences for us to reflect upon. How we experience family life here in the UK might not be the same as they do in other parts of the world. But wherever you are in the world, there are certain fundamental experiences and challenges to it which we need to reflect upon yeah no absolutely i mean also the document points out rightly that that love is a wonderful thing but i guess some of us may well have family members that aren't feeling the joy of love might even feel a bit unloved actually is this something that's acknowledged and uh, is any help offered suggestions and so forth in the document yes we have to get to chapter eight which is entitled accompanying discerning and integrating weakness. It is quite refreshing, perhaps to some of us anyway, with our feet on the pastoral ground, to see in some of these ecclesial documents these days a recognition of weakness, um, mm -hmm. something which was part of my life for a, a number of years before coming here, is um, the whole experience of forming men for priestly ministry and life. And um, there's a beautiful article within the Ratio Fundamentalis for priestly formation, which talks about integrating the graces and gifts of the spirit at work in a man with his limitations 
and frailties. And I think we have the same dynamic at work here in this particular text. It's not just putting forward the perfect ideal of family life. I'll leave you to decide, James, and everybody else listening to this, whether that's an experience you can understand and reflect, or whether, in fact, it seems to be totally idealistic. But that ideal is certainly presented when you look at an earlier chapter, chapter four, which talks about love in marriage, and clearly from the subtitles, is based upon that wonderful hymn to love in 1 Corinthians 13. So the ideal is always there. And I think a good way to meditate on that text is for a couple to say, can they exchange the word love for their own names? You know, can James say to his wife, James is patient, James is at the service of others. Gently leaving that one to one side, uh, we recognise that in chapter eight, there is an understanding of the real challenges that there are within family life. There's no dodging the issue whatsoever. And I think uh, we have some very powerful and customary Pope Francis ideas at work here in the ideas of accompaniment and discernment. This is an ongoing journey. Synodality means journeying together. Family life is certainly journeying together through the joys and the hopes and the fears and anxieties of family life. And with that Ignatian spirituality background, Pope Francis is inviting us to accompany families and in that way to be able to discern where the Spirit of God is at work in those families. And also, uh, again, within an Ignatian context, to see where the bad spirit is at work in family life. And I guess uh, that's a very good personal challenge you've laid down to me there. I'm not sure I can say I'm calm much of the time. So uh, much to work on for me in my in my uh, marriage and my family life. But um, yeah, it does sound very interesting. I shall go through it with my family and we'll see where we get to with those reflections. Bishop David, thank you very much. This will be on the Bishop's website, the Bishop's Conference website, cbcew.org.uk, and we'll signpost that prominently from the homepage. So we would certainly hope, would we not, that uh, our Catholic families out there have a good read and engage with it with an open mind. Amen. Yes, indeed. Amen to that. Well, that's it for the July slash August at the Foot of the Cross podcast. Thanks very much for listening. Enjoy your summer and we'll look forward to speaking to you again in September. Bye for now.